Welcome to Tech Talk. Bye. CDT. Welcome to CDT's Tech Talk, where we dish on tech and internet policy while also explaining what these policies mean to our daily lives. I'm Brian Wazalowski, and it's time to talk tech. Facing mounting pressures to address the proliferation of extremist and terrorist content online, four major tech companies have decided to work together to remove terrorist propaganda from their networks. Is this coordinated effort a boon for law enforcement and intelligence agencies, but a bust for free speech online? We'll hear from CDT's Director of Free Expression about her views on this initiative. We'll also be talking about harnessing the power of data for education. The Data Quality Campaign is a nonprofit organization that works to leverage data and the right information to help students succeed. The organization has recommendations for the new administration for how to do this, and their president joins us to discuss them. Governments worldwide are grappling with ways to combat terrorism. Rightfully so. One of those channels, however, that they're exploring is engaging internet companies in blocking or removing online extremist content. Most companies have pushed back against obligations to monitor for extremist or terrorist propaganda online. But recently, four major companies, Facebook, Microsoft, Twitter, and YouTube, announced that they would be working together to remove such content across their platforms. Will this collaboration reduce the amount of terrorist propaganda online? And what does it mean for online speech? CDT's Director of Free Expression, Emma Lanza, joins Tech Talk today to give us the 411. Welcome, Emma. Hi, Brian. Nice to be back on the show. Oh, as uh, you're, I think, our most frequent guest at this point. <laughs> so thank you for coming on again. So tell us about what this actual collaborative effort is. You know, how does it work and what are these mm-hmm. companies actually doing? Yeah. So last week, um, the four companies that you mentioned, Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, and Microsoft, announced that they would begin sharing hashes or kind of digital fingerprints of images and videos that are related to terrorist propaganda in some way. They've described in their announcement that this is the kind of most extreme or egregious kinds of propaganda, um, but it's it's content that violates one of the company's terms of service against either support for terrorism or advocacy of terrorism, um, possibly depictions of violent content or, or hateful speech, um, based on one of the company's assessment that an image or video violates their terms of service, they'll contribute a hash of that image to a centralized database so that the other companies can scan and identify whether that same image or video has been uploaded to their services. So if Facebook sees a new post or new video uploaded by ISIS, um, they will be able to sort of alert the other companies that this video is out there so that Twitter or YouTube can more quickly find it and also take it down. So what's interesting to me, Emma, in your detailed explanation there, uh, the word legal or illegal didn't really pop in. Is that part of the the issue with this? You know, who's making the judgment on you know what content to remove based solely on terms of service, and is it necessarily illegal content? It's a good question. Um, so the announcement from the companies was very focused on this being a voluntary process where the companies are 
each maintaining their own independent definitions of the content that they don't want to host on their own platforms. And it's going to be voluntary for any of the other participating companies to decide whether they agree and want to take down a post or a video from their own site. So if there's a gap between what Twitter considers off limits for its platform and what YouTube considers off limits for its platform, the companies may not come to the same decision. But of course, taking a step back, this is all happening in an environment of incredible pressure from governments first and foremost on these very companies to do more to take down terrorist propaganda. Um, whether that's illegal, uh, whether this, we're talking about illegal speech, actually really depends on the jurisdiction that you're in. Many European countries have laws against glorification or promotion of terrorism and advocacy of terrorist acts. In the US, we have laws against imminent incitement to violent action, which could cover some forms of advocacy to commit terrorist acts, but we don't have a law generally against uh, kind of propaganda that's generally supportive of a terrorist organization. Um, so the question of whether the speech gets that gets swept up in this database, whether that's illegal, could depend on the jurisdiction. But in any case, the companies are each deciding that they will apply their own terms of service, which can be more narrowly tailored than what right. government could prohibit they don't under have law. The same obligations as the government necessarily to meet those standards. That's right. That's that makes right. sense. And of course, you know, in the process as you describe it, you have to wonder if one company does flag it, you know, how are they, how are the other companies going to be reviewing it? In the world of algorithms and automated decisions, you could easily see a world where it's just, okay, one company hashed it, so we're just mm -hmm. gonna trust, you know, their judgment on this and not not review it ourselves. So you could easily see, I mean, these are four major companies. That content, you know, even you know, rightfully based on terms of service removed removed across all mm -hmm. of them and just disappear. Yeah. I think that's a real risk of this kind of system. Right now the companies are very clear that they intend to each do individualized determinations. Okay. But I think you will end up seeing uh, that bring additional scrutiny on the companies for what those decisions are. You know, if one of these companies decides to take this material down, I'm sure there will be a lot of scrutiny if their partner companies decide to leave it up, right? If one of your peers in the industry has said, this is extreme and egregious content, that's going to take some explaining to do about why right. you think it was a newsworthy event, why you think the context it's posted on in, on your own platform really merits it staying up. I hope they do that. I hope there is really this nuance in how they kind of implement this uh, these shared hashes, but I think the risk is that that takes a lot of time, that takes a lot of resources, and um, could draw a lot of scrutiny on how they make those decisions. They also mention in the announcement about this program that they um, may in the future open it up to other companies to participate. And you know, if you think particularly for smaller companies, if you're a you know four-person or even a 40-person little content hosting platform that has nowhere near the number of staff or the time and resources that the big companies do to do content moderation, the idea that there's a, you know, the ability to quickly and easily take down, you know, some of the worst uh, terrorist propaganda or whatever ends up in this database could be very appealing. So I, I wouldn't yeah. be surprised to see different kinds of companies take different approaches and, and for some to adopt a just automatic takedown. So there's also then, you know, the question of, does this actually work? I mean, so 
I, I think certainly the case that uh, the companies would make, or that law enforcement would make for why companies do this, is it's effective and it would help in the fight against terrorism. Any evidence that you know removing content like this from the internet does have any impact? I think it depends on what impact you're you're looking to have. Right? Is is the aim to stop the spread of this particular video or this particular message from ISIS might be very very effective at that, right? It might be, and that's where some of the free speech concerns come in, this sort of system might be almost too effective in ensuring that certain images or videos cannot be posted on any of the the major platforms. You can think of scenarios where that's a really good thing, but you can also think of ways that that creates real problems for journalists trying to report sure. on these very images or researchers trying to understand, you know, how are terrorist organizations using social media to get their messages out. If your goal is to stop, is to prevent the radicalization of individuals or to prevent the commission of terrorist acts, I think it's much less clear that there's a real connection between um, the images and videos that organizations post publicly on social media and the ultimate you know, legitimate aim of government of committing a terrorist act. Um, there's a lot of research out there on how, or increasingly there's more research on how the radicalization process actually happens. And it seems like much more of that is focused on um, recruiters grooming individuals and creating, you know, one-to-one relationships, lots of complicated factors, including the person's offline life and contacts and experiences, that kind of the role of a video or an image in all of this seems very small in compared to the many other factors that actually lead someone to decide to commit a violent act. Sure, definitely a complicated, complicated, you know, equation in terms of what, what tips it one way or the other. So, you know, with your free speech, you've already touched on some of these a bit, your free speech hat on, if you had to respond to someone saying, oh, come on, free speech, we're fighting terrorism here, how would you respond to that in terms of this, <laughs> you know, this initiative? Hypothetically, that somebody says something like that, yes. They would yes. never do that, right? <laughs> <laughs> no, I, so I think the, one of the real risks that this sort of setup creates is that it is a centralized point for keeping material out of circulation in the public. And right, everybody can probably think of certain material that they think should be in a database like that. What's not clear is how well the companies are going to be able to keep this thing narrowly focused on only you know, the most extreme and egregious terrorist propaganda. Um, if it was a database only of you know videos and depictions of people being beheaded, that would, there's still a strong argument that there's a lot of important reasons to be able to access that content, to be able to study it and review it, but that might be something that a lot of people could sort of get behind. I don't know that how possible it's gonna be for this to this database to remain that narrowly focused. Will it start being expanded, whether on the company's own initiative or I think much more likely due to pressure from governments sure. to cover a whole range of different kinds of speech? Kind of yeah, thing. exactly, yeah. right. What counts as egregious propaganda on behalf of which terrorist organizations? Yeah. How far can that line move? Um, I think it's really hard to tell without a very clear, bright line rule about what content gets included in this database, and also a lot of transparency and accountability built into the process so that there can be some kind of independent assessment of what's 
actually being registered in this database? You know, what is being kept out of public distribution on these major platforms? Um, because people are going to have a lot of questions about that, right? Like this database existing is going to be pointed to for good, you know, for accurate reasons or not by anybody who feels like they've been censored off of the major platforms. Sure, sure. And also you get the, this definition of what is a terrorist, who is a terrorist, who is a terrorist organization. I mean, gosh, Nelson Mandela was qualified or identified as a terrorist for a long stretch by the U.S. government, so there's a lot of things to consider. Um, when even looking at the definition of terrorist, let alone terrorist content. Uh, so you mentioned, you touched on this a little bit, but governments um, and their use of this database. I know that uh, you, you have a great blog post up on our website, cbt.org, and in that, one of your concerns is governments you know, really mm -hmm. abusing this database um, in terms of suggesting or saying, dictating what content needs to be included or mm -hmm. matched in that. You know, why are you so concerned about it, about this? Why is this yeah. has so much potential for abuse? Yeah. So this database comes after several years of pressure from governments on these companies to do more to keep this kind of content off of their services. Um, we've seen the creation and uh, expansion of these programs called internet referral units in Europe, um, where governments refer content to companies for the companies to judge under their own terms of service whether that material uh, should stay up or come down. So it's this blurring of the line between government action on the one hand, trying to get content removed from the web, but the putting all of the kind of onus and the responsibility for making that judgment and carrying it out on the private company. In this, in today, the announcement from last week um, with this hash database, I think you've got, you know, you've got the second part of that in place. You've got the coordinated way for companies to share information and assess this particular kind of content. I think it is only a matter of time before you see governments pick up the other side of it, right, and start pressuring the companies, whether informally or through court orders, to put certain material into the database yeah. or to um, you know, treat the fact that materials in the database as notice to the companies, to all of the companies involved, that there's illegal speech on their platforms. I think this is a big risk because, as you mentioned earlier, you know, there's there's no judge involved in this process, right? There's this is presented by the companies very much as a voluntary and independent assessment against their own terms of service. But I am not uh, sure how how to keep governments from trying to co-opt this database and turn it into something where they issue reports of material they feel is illegal um, and and use it as a much more formal hook for the companies all to keep this material off of their platforms. Interesting. So it seems as though companies are moving forward. We obviously have, you have great concerns, concerns about this, but you did provide some recommendations for how uh, something that is, well, not ideal could be better. What are some of those uh, recommendations that you have to try to make this takedown process and database at least less gross? <laughs> <laughs> so uh, we've talked about a few of them already. Um, I think having a very clear and very narrow definition of what material can go into this database is going to be very important. I think it's very understandable that each company wants to maintain their own independent terms of service and their own evaluation of that material, um, but without a clear standard that 
you know, make it more restrictive than what actually violates each company's terms, put a very high bar to what can be shared in this much more powerful kind of system um, so that it's much easier to say, no, that image or that video can't be added because it doesn't meet that bar. That's going to help guard against mission creep. And that's going to be a, you know, if that can be a clear um, and consistent standard that they continue to apply, that could be the best argument against the very many pressures from whether it's from government or civil society sure. about adding other kinds of horrible content to this database. Um, I think transparency obviously is going to be a very important piece, um, understanding kind of what is the effect of this database. Does it lead to, you know, hundreds of thousands of images being identified, or is it really a very small number? Um, what is the, how are, the responses of the companies actually bearing out you know does everybody decide to take down the material that they see sure. is there room for one platform to make different decisions in different circumstances right where when a image is posted by an organization it is considered to violate their policy against advocacy for terrorism but when that same image is posted by a journalist it stays up that's the kind of nuanced response that we'd want to see but without kind of reporting from the companies on how it's carrying through, we're not going to be able to tell that. And then finally, I think having some kind of independent assessment of this uh, process is going to be really important to um, allaying the concerns that I think governments, civil society are going to have about what, you know, what is this thing and how is it operating. Um, there's a chance for this all to seem very much like a shadowy collusion amongst some of the major tech companies in a time when lots of people are already really concerned about how are exactly these companies affecting our access to information and what is even available for us to debate as news or as uh, you know, in the public sphere. So having some kind of independent assessment that can be a guarantee that the material contained in this database really is only material that meets that clear bright line and hasn't turned into just the kind of catch-all for copyright enforcement and harassment and hate speech and nudity and whoever, whatever else it might be. Yeah, no, that's a good point, especially I, I didn't even, I mean, I guess I thought about it inherently about that the whole concept of fake news and who controls that access to information. Certainly tech companies are getting a lot of heat for that right now. This is a tough one for the companies, tough one for the advocates. We're glad that we have you at the table. I'm sure that the tech companies are glad you're at the table too for your always thoughtful advocacy. Thanks so much for uh, sharing your thoughts with us and for joining Tech Talk, Emma. Oh, thanks, Brian. For many people, the most personal and sensitive information out there is about children. Yet, when we think about the potential benefits of big data, improving educational outcomes is one of the first issues that comes to mind. How do we reduce risks and still realize the potential benefits of data to make decisions that support learning? The Data Quality Campaign is a nonprofit organization dedicated to doing just that. They strive to bring the right information to students, parents, educators, and policymakers so they can make decisions that support student learning. And they've de developed some great recommendations for the new administration for how it can make data work for students. The Data Quality Campaign's president, Amy Rogstad Guadera, did I say that right, Amy? Uh, Guadera. Guadera, Guadera, should have asked first, joins us on Tech Talk today. Welcome, Amy. Sorry about getting your name wrong. That's to okay. To kick it off. So first, for people not familiar with your organization, tell us a bit about the Data Quality Campaign. 
Great. Thank you so much for having me here. It's a pleasure, and we're so glad since Nula's on our board. It's a great, great tribute to have here. And so we really appreciate our partnership with CDT. So thank you so much for talking about this important issue. Um, So Data Quality Campaign is a nonprofit advocacy organization that's focused on changing the role of information in education. Uh, We believe passionately in the power of information and of data to change education and to change kids' lives. And we believe that our nation will never reach its education goals if we don't really focus on the power of data to empower better decision making, uh, to provide greater information on returns on investments about what's working in education, and how do we also make sure that those closest to children have the information that they need to make the right decisions, to take the right actions, to get the outcomes that our children need and that our country needs as well to prosper. Great. So let me ask you a tough question up first before we get to, you know, your recommendations for the new administration. Um, A lot of people are talking about how data can be misleading, you know, how it can lead to poor outcomes, or if it's just data that you're using, uh, it can, can actually be harmful. How would you respond to those people that question the value of data, especially in terms of education? Well, you know, data is a tool. It's it's not an ends, it's a means. And like any tool, um, data could be used to harm and hurt, and it can be used to help and to really uh, improve things. And at the Data Quality Campaign, we've really spent the last 11 years since we were founded to really change the conversation about the role of information, the role of data in education, and to change data from being seen as a hammer that's used to hurt people, hit them over the head, to really using it as a flashlight, as a tool of empowerment, a tool to shine a light on what's working, um, a tool to really show what's working, what's not working, and how do we use that information to focus on not just continuous improvement, but getting the results that we need and that our children need. That's great. So let's go to the the new administration, your recommendations for them. A little bit of a surprising administration for a lot of people. Um, What would you say your top level message is for them? So I think our top level level message is what our message is for everyone that we talk to. And our big idea at DQC is, you know, when when people have the right information, people that are working, whether they're parents, whether they're students themselves, whether they are teachers, educators, policymakers, voters, citizens, when people have the information they need to make the decisions that they need to about education, students and children excel. And that's what we're all about. How do we make sure, and we want this administration to focus on the power that they have and the, and the roles and responsibilities to make sure that anyone that has a stake in education has the data, has the information that they need to make the best decisions possible to help every single child in this country succeed. Um, and that's our recommendation that we've been making with state policymakers, that we've been talking with federal policymakers, and we feel there's a real opportunity with this change in administration um, at the federal level to reinforce this message and to also work with Congress on this, not just the administration, but also working with policymakers at every level, because information is critical at every single level, not just the federal, but at state and local as well. That's great. So let's dig into the plan a bit then. Uh, You have five recommendations for it. We could probably even just tick through them a little bit um, and maybe tell us what you mean by them. So the first one, and I'm paraphrasing a bit here, so correct me if I've paraphrased wrong. Um, The first one is to ensure that families have access to their own child's data. Is that not the case now? (laughs) It's not actually. You know, we, um, for the past 11 years, have surveyed states about 
about the status of data collection and data use and data empowerment, who sees what at what point. Mm. And our last survey that was done in 2014 showed that only 17 states at this point are able to guarantee that parents have their own child's information. And wow. we're not just talking about test scores, we're talking about meaningful information that can follow a child over time so that you don't just know how your child's doing today, but how does that look in the story? So really the video, not just the snapshot of how well a child's doing. And when you think about it, you're right, that's crazy that we are not even providing parents and students themselves the information that they need to be a great champion for their child, to be an advocate for their child, and just to make sure that they're making decisions based on information rather than anecdote or hunch or what they think is the right thing. Um, but they actually can have some data to really back up their role as their parents' greatest, as their child's greatest champion. And you would think that having access to the sort of information that is, you know, kind of creating the educational path for their child would make them feel a little bit more comfortable then about data being used in education if they knew what it was and, and Brian, weren't worried that, you know, either their, their child was being held back or whatever the case may be. Right. That. And Brian, that's an absolutely critical point. Part of the reason I believe that we've been seeing this backlash against both data and backlash against testing is that most people, well, most parents, when you say the word data in education, you think about a test. Yeah. You think about a high-stakes state test that people feel like they've not gotten any value out of. They don't know how that information and that how that test is going to help their child. They rarely see the information in a timely basis, and it's really has not been explained to people about the what's in it for me. Why does this actually mm -hmm. matter for me as a parent, and how is this going to help my child? So as a result, because they don't see value in it, and they don't know how it's being used, and there could be some mistrust there, guess what? Then they are gonna say, I don't need that. I don't right. need this data, and I'm kind of more worried about it. And this back to your earlier question, um, that then people say, well, wait a second, this sounds more scary than good. And you know, when people make that decision about, is this gonna help my child, um, or is it gonna hurt my child, people will always um, fall on the side of making sure their child is safe and secure first. Absolutely. And so what we think with this first recommendation is, that a very important foundational step um, is to make sure that every parent and every student, him or herself, has their own information. Because at that point, we have a better understanding of what's happening with my child, and it changes the entire conversation. And to be blunt, it takes the boogeyman out of some yeah. things. Because if you actually see what people have collected on your child, it changes the conversation, and it puts aside some of that fear, and it builds trust through that transparency. Great point. So your next one was uh, actually seems to piggyback yeah. right off that increased transparency and public accountability. Um, uh, obviously, you've touched on transparency. Yeah. What about the public accountability side? So of this opportunity, we in education, we had a landmark piece of legislation reauthorized um, last December, the Every Student Succeeds Act. And this is a reauthorization of the much vilified No Child Left Behind Act. Mm -hmm. um, and one of, the, one of the things that Every Student Succeeds Act does is it builds on what I think is the greatest legacy of No Child Left Behind, which was providing greater public transparency about how well students and groups of students are doing. Um, the Every Student Succeeds Act really builds on this idea of public reporting of, of progress of schools. And what's different and really important and why we think this administration should double down on this is that there's an opportunity to not just have that that transparency and that accountability be focused on the fed, federal government and states being accountability to the federal government, but more about how do we make sure that the public at large has the information that they need and that they, they deserve, and to be blunt, they haven't been getting, about how well their neighborhood schools are doing. How well are our tax dollars being spent and are we getting the results that we need? And are we serving every single child that we need to serve in this country? And so the opportunity here is to build on what this new reauthorization has done 
but actually improve upon it. So for example, one of the things that's now required in every, um, every state in the country is to report back on feedback information. How well do the graduates of this school do when they go into, uh, when they leave our doors and they go into post-secondary education and training? And you now have to report back um, what percentage of students of your graduates from your high school go on to higher education. Um, and that's really important. That's what parents want to know. They want right. to know what happens to kids once they leave these doors. Is my kid going to be okay? Um, and yet we think that there's so much further that can be gone of what parents really want to know and what teachers and principals really want to know is, well, of that percentage of kids that went on to higher education, how many of them dropped out? How many actually were able to get a job? How many needed remediation to retake courses that we told them that they did okay in in high school? And so that level of information, and the bottom line is, this point about transparency and public accountability, we need to make sure that the public at large has the information that they need and deserve, not just our policymakers, but the public, about how well our schools are serving our, our citizens. That's a great point. Now let's talk about teachers, your third mm -hmm. recommendation. Um, knowledge, access, and the tools they need. What, how can data help out teachers? So one of the things that we know about our teachers is that they are starved for better information. They know themselves that data is a is a tool that they can use to make sure that they are personalizing education and tailoring education to every child in their classroom. Um, that they know that it's a tool that's going to help them make their jobs easier, that especially when combined with technology, they have the ability to tailor just in time and get back instant feedback so they know how to change the lesson plan, not just for next week, but to make sure that every child's on track for mastering the concept they're teaching. Really exciting things. But what we also know from lots of surveys and listening to uh, teachers they don't know how to use this data. And so we have a real lack of what we call data literacy in this country. There are very few schools of education that are, are offering courses. There are very few states um, that actually require that, that, um, that teachers, that prospective teachers have to be data literate, that they have to know how to access and use and protect data in a responsible way. And so we think this is a real opportunity for this administration to underscore the important role that teachers play in making sure that data is used as a tool for good. It's used as a tool for, of empowerment. It's used as a tool for personalization. Because what we also know is that information and data by itself doesn't change anything. Right. That unless people trust that information and unless they find value in it and they know how to use it to help meet their goals, then it's all for naught. And so we think this people side of the equation, the people side of the data equation really, really matters. Yeah, and teachers definitely work very, very hard. So without kind of that literacy, trying to figure out how to use the data, that's just more that they have to do in exactly. terms of their day. So finding a way to make sure that data is something that makes their, their lives easier, you know, improves Absolutely. outcomes. It also makes their job easier and you know makes them more effective but totally. not adds an, another layer of burden and if i can add on to that i think yeah, one of the other key things is that it can't just be another thing as you're saying yeah. that adds on to the long list of what we're asking our teachers to do and this is also when we talk at dqc about we need to improve and address the conditions and the capacity and the culture around data use that without also changing how we think about time, how we organize the day, um, how we're providing opportunities for teachers to talk with one another about students using data, um, then again, it's just an add-on and teachers end up resenting it as right. being something that's hurting them rather than something that's helping them be successful. All right. Recommendation number four. We're ticking through these at a great rate. And this one I love, obviously, as a privacy-focused organization. Reduce unnecessary data collection. What sort of data is being collected that you would view as unnecessary now? or? Is this just a down-the-road type thing? So this fourth recommendation is all about building trust. And as you all know here at CDT, one of the key pieces about building trust is having people understand why you're collecting a piece of, what data you're collecting, 
why you're collecting it, mm-hmm. how it's going to help somebody, and what are you doing to make sure that this data is used only for the purpose for which it's collected, and what are you Absolutely. doing to ensure that it's kept safe, secure, confidential, and private. And I would argue, without doing all of those things, we will never, ever, ever win the public trust, and especially the trust of parents. And that's what's critical. As I keep saying, no one is going to use information that they don't trust. And one of the things we're finding is that there are lots and lots of questions out there about, well, what is collected on my child? Why are we collecting it? How is this going to help somebody? And like in every sector, we have lots of data that has been collected. It's been on the books for 10, 20, 30, 40 years because somebody wrote something into a piece of legislation you know, here in D.C. on the Hill or in the state capitol somewhere. And people aren't using that information anymore. And so one of our recommendations is to do an annual audit, both here in Congress, the administration should do this, as well as at the state level, to ensure that we are reviewing every single year, what are we asking people? What are we mandating we have to collect? And if somebody can't prove about how that piece of information is going to help a child succeed, we should sunset that collection. That would go a long way to building trust and making sure that people, that someone's mining the store, someone is thinking about what we actually need, and we're not just collecting things willy-nilly, but that there's a very deliberate plan that we only collect what we need and that we can defend is going to help children succeed. Um, And there's a whole lot of recommendations that we've written in here um, about what we need to do about data governance, what we need to do about ensuring that we're using best practices from not just within education, but across the entire world, and this is the work that you all do so well, of identifying those best practices about security and privacy and making sure that the education sector becomes a leader in this um, because that's what trust is all about. And we have to make sure that the data conversations are not ones built in fear um, and myths and a sense of people not knowing what's happening with their children's information and instead double down on making sure that people understand why this data matters, why it's going to help their own individual child, and how this information is being um, not just collected, but protected and used responsibly. And that also this faith and this trust that everybody who is working with this data, from teachers to administrators, um, are, are know how to use, use it responsibly and ethically and morally. Um, so I can't speak enough about this fourth recommendation because without this trust building, nothing else matters. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. And, uh, you know, having those governance structures in place, because a lot of uh, education, you have, you know, third-party vendors, people working with that data to create some really awesome things that I've seen, but you want to make sure that they are also using that data responsibly. Absolutely. And that's a, a broader part of the ecosystem. Um, all right, let's go to the fifth one here. So support development of the necessary infrastructure. I mean, these just all kind of go together, don't they? These are great. It just is like the perfect blueprint for the new administration. Tell us about this, supporting development of the necessary infrastructure um, around data. So we have a lot of holes and clinky systems, I guess is the technical (laughs) word, and about our inabilities for data to follow and work for students on behalf of students. And that's what we're all about at DQC. How do we make sure that data is working for students? How do we make sure that it's benefiting students? And right now, um, we have lots of things that aren't working. And so we always believe at DQC, start with the questions that people have. And right now, we we can answer a whole lot more questions than we could 10 years ago before we Mm -hmm. had the development of data infrastructure at the state level, but we still have lots of holes in those systems. Right now, we cannot follow, uh, the information cannot follow a student. So when they leave, um, once they go across the state line for learning, so thinking about the opportunities to do online learning uh, or to take a higher education class in Massachusetts and you live in Minnesota, 
Um, that information right now is really hard to follow. How do you make sure that that information about how well a student's doing on an online class actually gets to be part of that record? Mm. Um, how do you make sure that we're able to connect up a higher ed record, you know, the records I talked about earlier, that post-secondary? Right now, we don't have the ability to have data, that feedback data, to follow a student if they go to a higher education institution that's different than where their high school was. Oh, interesting. Which is crazy, yeah. right? That when we talk about competitiveness and we talk about how do we make sure we're preparing every student for success in life and in a knowledge economy, we actually don't know how well we're doing because it's so hard to actually connect that information. So, you know, feedback information really matters. And if we want our K-12 systems to improve, they need that feedback information. And yet right now, that's the kind of infrastructure that's lacking and that we think there's an opportunity to build that information structure. And again, that needs to be driven not by the needs of data nerds. It needs <laughs> to be built by the needs of what individuals need. You know, number one thing. What do parents and families want to know when they are now starting to look at making the biggest investment in their life in higher education? You know, taking out thousands and thousands of dollars of loans. They want to know, what am I going to get as a result right. of this? If my kid goes to this school, what percentage of kids graduate on time? What, what kind of salaries should they get? What kind of jobs? Things like that. That information is really hard to come by. And especially I want to know, can you link it back to a high school and know kids that graduate from this high school, how successful are they mm -hmm. in, in higher education? And what are the factors that made them successful? Exactly. I mean, that's, that's huge. Okay, so let's pivot back. Great plan. I encourage everyone to check it out. Remind me again what your website is. Uh, and that's where you can find this great plan. It's right on the homepage, and it's beautifully designed as well. So mentioned, you know, an administration that a fair number of people didn't necessarily expect. We even have a, a name for a potential uh, education secretary. Mm -hmm. Do you think that uh, education and data in education might be a priority for this administration? So I personally hope so. <laughs> I, I believe that the success of this administration and the success of this country is dependent on how well we educate every child. And um, the power of the bully pulpit of the presidency and the federal government for setting the direction for the nation and for setting the tone of the conversations that we're going to have and what we're going to prioritize matters a whole lot. And so I really do encourage the, the, the Trump administration and new members of Congress to focus on the power of data to change lives and the power of data to ensure that that our school systems are serving um, serving every student in this country and that we have an opportunity to make sure that we get the best um, results for our taxpayer dollars, but that also that we take advantage of innovation, that this can help support choice. And we know that some of the things we're hearing about, the themes that will be important to the Trump administration, such as international competitiveness, such as increased choice, mm -hmm. those things, those conversations can't happen unless you have quality information. Um, talking about empowering parents, you can't empower parents without giving them the information they need to make the best decisions possible. So I sure hope that education is a priority of the Trump administration and of the next Congress. Um, and I really, really hope that the conversations around how we make sure data is a tool for good and that we make sure that we're using data to empower uh, and to inform better decision-making at all levels is an absolute priority for this administration. I, I share your, your hope for that. And Amy, thank you so much for joining Tech Talk. Glad you all are the ones fighting on this. And we'll have to have you back again Good. at some point and find out how things are moving. I look forward to it. And thank you again for taking the time to talk about this. A pleasure. 
That's it for this episode of Tech Talk. You can read more about CDT's response to the private company's takedown collaboration at cdt.org. And definitely be sure to check out the great work of DQC at datacualitycampaign.org. I hope everyone has a safe and joyous holiday season. I'm Brian Wozlowski. Thanks so much for listening.